Today's scripture comes from the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 3 through 17. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Listen, my beloved, look. Here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooling of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies, until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle, or like a young stag on the rugged hills. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good afternoon to uh, all of you, if we haven't met yet. Uh, my name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Exilic, and uh, I want to welcome you to our uh, Sunday worship service today. Um, two weeks ago, we embarked on a new sermon series on the Song of Songs, and the subtitle is uh, The Surprising Things the Bible Has to Say About the Body, Sex, and Love. And we've entitled it The Surprising Things the Bible Has to Say About These Issues because my hunch is that prior to the series, many of you had no idea what the Song of Songs was about. And that's understandable because the Song of Songs is a poem and poetry in general is not easy to understand. Furthermore, there are over 15 animals that are used as metaphors, 15 different plants that are used as animals, uh, metaphors, uh, different cities that are used as metaphors. and so. It's not the easiest book in the world to understand. But my other hunch is that now that some of you know a little bit about what the Song of Songs is about, my other hunch is that this is quickly now one of your favorite uh, books in the Bible because it talks about such relevant things like love, romance, marriage, the body, and uh, sex. And so today, uh, we're actually gonna talk uh, about sex uh, in our passage. And uh, before we dive deeply into it, I do want to say that historically, uh, the Song of Songs has been critiqued. And it's been critiqued for two reasons. Number one, it reads very ir irreligiously. And number two, it reads very erotically. So it reads very irreligiously. Nowhere in this entire poem is God's name even mentioned once. In fact, there is nothing remotely religious about it at all. There's no mention of worship, prayer, sacrifices, church, the cross, and so it reads very irreligiously. But it not only reads irreligiously, it reads very erotically. In Jewish tradition, unless you were married 
or at least 30 years old, you were forbidden from even reading the Song of Songs. So you can imagine a group of hormonal teenage Jewish boys on this hiking trip, and they're in this tent in the dark, and one of them is like, yo, guys, guess what I got? I took it from my parents' bedroom, Song of Songs, and they're reading it with like a flashlight in the dark. And, and so it was forbidden for anyone, unless you were married or at least 30 years old, uh, to even read the Song of Songs because of how erotically it does read. So my question is this, why are we taking a look at it today and why is it even in the Bible? Well, I think for at least two reasons. Number one, what this romantic relationship is really pointing to is the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. He wants to woo us off our feet, and not in an erotic way, but in the sense that he wants to very much be in the picture of your life. And I know that existentially, sometimes it feels like, where are you? But based upon what this poem is all about, he really desires to have an intimate, close, personal relationship with you, not a distant one at all. And the second thing that I would say, uh, uh, the second reason why it's in the Bible and why we're taking a look at it today is because, you know, sex, marriage, love, romance, this, this is an important part of the human experience, an important part of our lives. And for the Bible not to talk about this stuff at all, I mean, we would be left in the dark about these things. But the Bible doesn't keep us in the dark about these things. If anything, it sheds light and it illuminates for us how we should think about these things, which I think we should all be grateful for. And so if you're joining us uh, for the first time today, we're jumping into the middle of the poem, and the main character in this poem is a woman who is madly in love with this man, and today we read about how she sexually yearns and desires to be with this man. And so read with me again verses 3 to 6. Listen to what she says. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. In verse five, the woman says, that she needs to be strengthened because she is weak. And the reason why she is weak is because she is faint with love. Just the thought of sexually being with this man makes her knees weak. And so she is intoxicated at the thought of even making love to him. And if you take a look with me at verse 17, the final verse, she says this, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. And here what she is saying is that until the sun rises in the morning and the shadows flee, I dream about you making love to me all night long. And she compares him uh, to a gazelle or a young stag, which is a deer, pouncing upon her, advancing on her, jumping on her, and the rugged hills are an allusion to her breasts. Again, busting any stereotype that men are the only sexual creatures on this planet, women are very much so as well. And it's not only her who sexually desires to be with this man, but he also desires to be with her. And so take a look with me at verses 10 to 13. And here she is quoting him. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. 
See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land, the fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance, arise, come my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. And what he is saying here in these verses is that he also wants to make love to her. And he uses these seasonal analogies to suggest that the time is now for them to make love. And the reason why I'm reading this passage for us today uh, is because when we take a look at the Bible, the Bible affirms and celebrates our sexual desires. That evolution is not the one that has gifted us these sexual desires, but God is the one that has gifted us these sexual desires, and so it should be affirmed uh, and celebrated. And the reason I say this is because oftentimes both the church and our culture has done a woefully inadequate job about talking about sex. So let me critique the church for a little bit. You know, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, one of the pervasive schools of thought was Platonic dualism. And in Platonic dualism, the world was divided into two very clean categories, the physical and the spiritual. The physical was bad, the spiritual was good, and the two could never overlap. And because the material universe was sort of seen as a bad thing, our bodies were, was also seen as sort of a functional prison. And so the way to experience any sense of enlightenment in this life and in the life after was through then physical deprivation or living an ascetic lifestyle. So for example, fasting from food, not drinking alcohol, not having sex. And so in Platonic dualism, it was all about escaping the material world and the spirit sort of leaving this prison that we call our body and earth. And Platonic dualism very early on also leaked and infiltrated into the early church. And I, would not, and I would say not only the early church, but also the modern church. I grew up in the church, and I grew up in a time uh, during the church when the purity culture was thick in the church. Everything was segregated. Boys over here, girls over here. And whenever we talked about sex, if we talked about it at all, which we rarely ever did, if we ever did talk about it, it was always about how we couldn't do it. And you know what happens when you tell kids that they can't do something? <laughs> they want to do it even more. You know why? Because that's the nature of the human heart. Look no further than uh, Augustine's confessions for that. And so the church has done a woefully inadequate job about talking about sex because we either shove it underneath the rug Shh, let's never talk about this awkward thing, or we lock it up in this cage of rules and regulations, which is so a shame. Because when we take a look at the Song of Songs, in the next chapter, it actually portrays the body and sex as a beautiful garden. And you know what the church has done? We have poured asphalt, cement, and pavement all over this garden and smothered it. Rather than looking at sex as something to be celebrated and affirmed, we only talk about how we can't do it. But it's not only the church that has done an inadequate job about talking about sex, but I think our culture has as well. On the one hand, the church undervalues sex, but I would say that our culture both overvalues sex and it simultaneously undervalues sex. And so here's what I mean. Uh, one of the former uh, editors of, the, uh, of Cosmopolitan was once asked, what are the three best things in life? And her response was sex. 
and the interviewer said, well, what are the other two? And she said, who knows? In our culture, sex is everywhere and it is everything. But you know what happens when something becomes everything? It eventually becomes nothing. And so on the one hand, our culture overvalues sex, but because we overvalue it so much, we simultaneously undervalue it as well. And here's what I mean. The other pervasive thought in the Greco-Roman world, other than Platonic dualism, was hedonism, which is the direct opposite of platonic dualism. In hedonism, it's all about gratifying your desires. So if you're hungry, eat. If you're thirsty, drink. If you have sexual urges, just have sex. And so sex was viewed as just another appetite. If you're hungry, if you have an urge or a desire to do it, uh, just go ahead and do it. And this also has infiltrated into our modern culture. Sex is no more than just an appetite. And so there's now an emptiness with the way that we talk about sex because it's just an appetite. It's no longer a gift that we can give to another person. But sex is now about my own personal self-fulfillment. It's not an, out, uh, an outward expression of my inner love for the other person, but it's an outward expression of an inner love for myself. I think a good example of that is masturbation and pornography. And no, we are not a church that talks about masturbation and pornography every week because it is not the chief of all sins, but we cannot not talk about it either because it is so pervasive in our culture. It plagues so many of us, and it has such a strong addictive power over us. But if we view sex like money, Pornography is a severe devaluing of sex because on the one hand, we intimately know the parts of another person, but we don't even know them at all intimately. And I think masturbation and pornography are a good example of how we view sex as merely an appetite, not a gift that we give to another person, but rather it is about my own personal uh, self-fulfillment and whatever meets my needs. And so imagine that we're driving a car and all of a sudden the gas is completely empty. So we go to the gas station, but instead of filling it up to the tank, we only put a dollar in. Now there's some gas in the tank, but it's only a matter of time before we're quickly empty again. And that is what pornography and masturbation is like. It satisfies our desires for a moment but it is only a matter of time before we are quickly uh, empty again, thirsting for uh, more and more. What's so interesting is that because we have undervalued sex uh, in our culture today and only seen it as an appetite, what's interestingly uh, happening in our society today um, is that we're actually having less and less sex. And it's not because our sexual desires have diminished, it hasn't but it's really because we're fulfilling our sexual desires through other means, particularly through technology. And so I do wanna read us uh, something on the first page of your bulletin uh, in an Atlantic article uh, from Kay Julian, and here she is actually quoting uh, an anonymous person. And she says, the internet has made it so easy to gratify basic social and sexual needs that there's far less incentive to go out into the meat world and chase those things. This isn't to say that the internet can give you more satisfaction than sex or relationships because it doesn't. 
but it can supply you with just enough satisfaction to placate those imperatives. I think it's healthy to ask yourself, if I didn't have any of this, would I be going out more? Would I be having sex more? I think for a lot of people my age, I think the answer is probably yes. And so on the one hand, the church has sort of uh, buried sex or is ashamed to talk about sex. And on the other hand, our culture tends to talk about sex purely from an appetite perspective. But when we take a look at this Song of Songs, it doesn't you know, shove it under the rug, nor is it something that is merely viewed as an appetite. Rather, sex is viewed as something that is very, very sacred. The Greeks had multiple words for the word love. And so um, uh, agape love is unconditional love, storge love, familial love, phileo love, brotherly love, the city of Philadelphia. And there was also sexual or erotic love or eros love. But it, the Greeks not only had different versions of love, but the Hebrews did as well. One of those words for sexual or erotic love is the Hebrew word dode. And what dode means is not two bodies touching one another, but in Hebrew what the word dode means is two souls touching one another. Because that's what happens when you have sex. Uh, I mentioned before in some other sermon that my first love, uh, even before God was basketball, uh, but that love has also broken my left arm <laughs> and it has also broken my right wrist. I have a two or three screws in my right wrist. Now, I've broken my bones, but even though I've broken my bones, it hasn't really traumatized me for the rest of my life. Now, I'll talk to anyone that's ever been sexually abused. Why is it that being sexually abused is so traumatizing? It's because their souls were touched. No bones were broken, but their souls were touched, and not in the right way, the way that sex is supposed to be used, but it was touched in the wrong way. That is how powerful sex is. That is how sacred it is. It is the mingling of two souls together, and when that happens, no relationship is ever the same again. I want to read us something from the historian and uh, ethics professor Lewis Smeads on the first page of her bulletin. And Smeads writes this, there is no such thing as casual sex. No matter how casual people are about it, when two bodies are united in sex, two persons are united. The body is the person, the outside person that touches the world around him. This is why genital sex is always personal sex. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. Creatively or destructively, the soul is in the act. The physical side of sexual intercourse is a sign of what ought to happen on the inside. Two bodies are never closer. Penetration has the mystique of union and the orgasmic finale is the exploding climax of one person's abandonment to another the most fierce and yet most sensitive experience of trust. Afterward, the two people seldom feel the same way toward each other again. After intercourse, the relationship is somehow not what it was uh, before. Sex is that powerful? That is why it is so sacred. You know, one of the common practices in the Greco-Roman world was for men to have wives, mistresses, and concubines. And it wasn't until Christianity entered the scene that Christians said, actually, no, sex is between a married couple. 
because it is that powerful and it is that sacred. And it's not because Christians have a very low view of sex, rather it's because Christians have such a high view of the power and sacredness of sex. And similarly, this couple doesn't have a low view of sex, but they have a very lofty view of sex, which is actually why they wait. And so take a look with me at verse seven. And the woman says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And here she says, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And what she's saying is this, the time isn't now, but eventually it will be. Sex is not just about doing it with the right person, but it's also about doing it at the right time as well. And here's what she's saying. She's saying, babe, I really, really, really want to, but not yet. Now, as modern people, when we hear the phrase, not yet, in a generation where we receive everything instantaneously, this is the brilliance of Amazon Prime, it preys on our impatience, we're so used to getting everything that we want now, and so when we hear the phrase, not yet, babe, what we hear is, never. But not yet simply means not yet. I want to, but now is not the right time because we are not married yet. Now here is the sociological tension that we face as modern people. According to a Pew Research study in 1960, adults between the ages of 18 to 29, 60% of adults were married between the ages of 18 to 29. In 2011, adults between the ages of 18 to 29, it was not 60%, but it was 20%. Now that number, I am assuming, is even lower for New Yorkers. So here's the sociological tension that we face. We are now getting married later and later and later but our sexual urges have not diminished whatsoever. And so this is part of the, this is the sociological uh, sexual tension that we face. And so it's hard not to have sex. And to be honest, I don't blame you <laughs> because sex is that great. Waiting for something great is never easy to do. So I would never blame you for wanting it now because that is how sacred and powerful it is. And yet when we take a look at this text, here is a couple that chooses uh, to wait. One loophole I think that Christians have found because of the sociological sexual tensions that we face is that we do have sex, but we have sex with someone that we're eventually going to marry. So we're not you know, having sex with everyone in the city, but we're having sex with the person that we know we're gonna marry one day. And what I would say is, then get married now. Paul says the same thing. If you're burning that much, get married now. And you know what the typical response is? No, we have to wait. <laughs> I have to save money to buy the ring. I have to wait. We have to find the perfect time for the proposal. I have to fly her parents in and wait to find the perfect date. We have to wait because the venue is not going to open up for another 8 to 12 months. We have to wait. Do you know how long it takes to plan a wedding? 
And so clearly, we have the capability of waiting. But why is it that we so quickly rush into sex? We literally today have it completely backwards. In an Instagrammable age, for us, the apex of the mountain is the big ring, it's the epic proposal, and it's the big wedding that everyone's gonna remember when the truth of the matter is, no one really is. That is the apex of the mountain when the truth of the matter is, it's really the base. You know what the apex of the mountain is? Marriage, sex. That's the apex of the mountain, not this other stuff that we often get so uh, confused with. When you get married, from a biblical perspective, it is two people becoming one flesh. You know what sex is? It is a mirror of marriage. It is two people literally becoming one flesh and they're joined together. Sex is merely a mirror of what marriage is like, which is why it should be done in the context of marriage, not outside the context of marriage. But even more than that, you know what sex and marriage ultimately, ultimately point to? The kind of relationship that God wants to have with us, where he not only wants your body, which by the way, he does, but he wants your mind, your heart, your soul, your everything. And the way that he wants to do that for you and you to him is always in the context of a covenant. In today's culture, we view marriage merely as a social contract, which we can break as soon as it gets hard. But from a biblical perspective, marriage is not a social con uh, contract, it is a covenant, a solemn pledge, a vow that we're making in sickness and in health in joy and in sorrow, in plenty and in want, I am committed to you. And it is precisely in that context that God is covenantally committed to us and he wants all of us. And that is the same way that we should view one another, our romantic relationships uh, with one another. And it's this covenantal love, it's this covenantal love that we also desire that only God can provide for us. No other person can. At the end of the day, that's really what we want, isn't it? Not only to love another person, but to be loved. And I can tell you, as a married person, no person can fulfill you the way that you need to be fulfilled. Only God can do that. Freud once said, our spiritual longings are nothing more than suppressed sexual desires. Christianity comes in and says, no, actually you have it completely backwards. Our sexual desires are really suppressed spiritual longings. It's a real longing for God himself. So let me read uh, one final quote from Ronald Rollheiser. And he says, sex cannot deliver the goods it alleviates our loneliness too little, especially our moral loneliness. Sex that isn't sublime doesn't bring us a soulmate. What it brings is a fix, a hit, a drug that helps us through a lonely night or a lonely season. But that deep down, we know, cannot give us what we need. 
More deeply than we long for a sexual partner, we long for moral affinity, for someone to visit us in that deepest part of us where all that is most precious to us is cherished and guarded. Our deepest longing is for a partner to sleep with morally, a kindred spirit, a soulmate in the truest sense of the word. And that kindred spirit we all long for is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is, comes from John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And there's a large gathering of people that are listening to him teach. And as he's teaching and writing on the chalkboard, a bunch of Pharisees come and they're literally dragging a naked woman to him <laughs> as he's teaching. And they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, in the act. And the law of Moses says that we should stone her. What do you think we should do? And he gets down on one knee and begins to write on the ground. By the way, we have no idea what he was writing, but I just think that's kind of cool. So he's writing on the ground. <laughs> and so they're like, hey, this naked woman right here caught in the act of adultery. What do you think we should do? And what is his response? Let anyone who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. And you know what's so interesting about John? So interesting. It says one by one, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, they began to drop their large stones. And you can almost hear the thud of the stone hit the ground one by one by one. And I've always wondered, why does John say that it was the oldest who dropped their stones first and not the youngest? Why wasn't it the youngest that dropped their stones first? You know why? The older you get, hopefully the wiser you get, and the older you get, you realize that no one escapes this life without ha having done something really, really stupid. We are all moral failures. None of us are morally pure, and the older you get, the more you realize that. And so pretty soon, Jesus looks up from the ground and he sees that there is no one there. And so he says to the woman, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And the reason why he doesn't condemn her, even though she deserves to be condemned, is because Jesus would eventually take that condemnation in her place. Where now, on the cross, something mysterious and magical happens, it is as though she never committed this adulterous act, and it is as though he did. There's a marvelous exchange that takes place on the cross. That's why he says to her, then neither do I condemn you. And oftentimes when we hear this story, that's where the story ends. But that is not how the story ends. It continues. And after he says to her, uh, then neither do I condemn you. You know what he says to end the story? Now go and leave your life of sin. Repentance is not just remorse, but it is a willingness, a desire to go and leave now your life of sin. The old has gone. Past is the past. The present is now. You know, one of my favorite stories, and I'll close with this, and I am so sorry if you've heard this like 10 million times if you've been in exilic. There's so many people that haven't, so I have to use it. Uh, is a story of Augustine. 
the, the North African theologian. And if you're not familiar with the story of Augustine, by the way, I, in my personal opinion, I do think that he was the greatest theologian in church history. He is the one that wrote the first autobiography in human history, the Confessions. But if you're not familiar with Augustine, uh, he, he did not come to faith at an early age. In fact, he came to faith in his 30s. And a lot of that is because of a lot of the intellectual struggles that he had about Christianity, a lot of intellectual questions. But eventually, he was able to overcome those intellectual struggles somewhere in his 30s. But the one thing that he was not able to overcome was not his intellectual questions. The one thing that Augustine was not able to overcome was his lust. The most profound theologian in church history was a very, very promiscuous man. And there's a story about him going to uh, Trader Joe's for shopping, and yes, there was a Trader Joe's back then, and he's going through the aisles, and all of a sudden he hears, Augustine, it is I. And he looks, and it's one of his old mistresses. And he's like, oh gosh, this is so awkward. So he quickly goes into the produce aisle. She follows him, thinking maybe he didn't hear me. So she goes, hey, Augustine, it is I. And he's like, oh my gosh, there's so many people here. And so he goes again to the next aisle. And this time she's like, does he not remember the night that we had together? And so she goes up to him face to face and she says, Augustine, it is I. You know what his response was? But it is not I. That used to be me. But now I'm different. The old has gone the new has come. I don't care what you've done in the past. Past is the past. And it's nailed to the cross. This is a new day. You are a new person. And I cannot tell you how proud I am of the people in our own community that have struggled with this, but we're able to overcome it. That's their story. It could be your story as well. Why? It's not because we have such a low view of sex, but it's because we have such a high view of sex. It's not because we want to rain on your parade, it's because we want to give you a greater parade. It's not because we want to lessen your experiences in this life, no, it's actually because we want to heighten your experience. Sex is like a fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it can burn a house down. That is how powerful sex is. But there is a good way of doing it and a good way of looking at it. And I do think that we find it here in this passage. And hopefully we can talk about it again next week as well. Let's pray with me. God, thank you. Uh, for not keeping us in the dark about something so human and something so innate. And it is my prayer also that um, you would give us an inner fortitude and strength to really uh, desire to obey you even beyond our own personal desires, which can be oftentimes a war. And I'm praying that as a community, we can be here for one another. May your spirit give us the strength that we need and help us to always realize that you don't want to deprive us of anything, but if anything, you want us to experience the good life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I invite the uh, 